electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much, and welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour of the final stretch, what the last five weeks of the year are likely to hold for your money as China risks escalate, hitting several important parts of the market. We debated, of course, with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, everybody right here on the desk. Good to see all of you. Let's check the markets. It is 12 noon in the east, and we're down across the board. Carl just said 260 decline for the Dow. S&P 500 is down eight-tenths of a percent. There's the Nasdaq under some pressure, too. 369, the yield on the 10-year. We're going to get to all of that. The great debate about where we're going from here. But first, Steve Leisman, he has some breaking news. Headlines from a speech New York Fed President John Williams is about to give to the Economic Club of New York. Leisman has it. What's he going to say? He's going to say inflation is far too high. Scott, uh, New York Fed President John Williams, one of the key uh, rate setting members of the Federal Market Committee, says he's confident the Fed will restore price stability. He is seeing some progress in bringing down inflation, but this is a nuanced view. He sees improvement in inflation from commodities and supply chain disruptions. He notes that they're no longer seeing ships stalled at the ports in California and new auto inventories are edging back up. But he talks about a third type of inflation. He calls it underlying inflation. He calls it the most challenging for the Federal Reserve. He sees broad-based inflation coming from services and labor costs. This type of inflation, he says, will take longer to bring back uh, or bring back down. He sees some progress, though, in doing so. Uh, for example, he notes rents are declining and signs of labor, mar- labor markets starting to cool. Measures of liquidity, remember the New York Fed is, uh, does monitor markets through the New York, New York Fed desk. Uh, he says they have de- declined, but they're in line with historical averages. On the economic outlook, he sees real GDP rising only modestly in 2023. That could be a zero or it could be just a few tenths of a point. Unemployment he sees going up from the current three, seven to four and a half to around five percent. Inflation will decline from around five or six percent now to three, three and a half percent next year. Returns to two percent, the Fed's target over the next few years. Scott, I'm not getting a big call from Williams, either hawkish or dovish on this. This looks to be a kind of stay the course speech from what Mm. I can get. Yeah. Rare, uh, given the Fed speak of late, where you get a pretty good indication. I was going to ask you, where are the comments about, you know, pausing, not even in the conversation that we've heard from everybody out there? Not in there? There is Q&A, though. So we'll be I'll go back to my uh, back, back into my lair and I'll be listening uh, more to Williams. And if he says anything, I'll pop back on and All make right. sure that, you know, first, just and fastest. All right. We look forward to that. Let me ask you quickly, though, before you go, Powell, right on Wednesday at Brookings. Um, I would figure that's his last public commentary Absolutely. before because they go into the, the quiet period. What, what what are you thinking about as it relates to that? Uh, meeting. I, I, I don't think that, you know, I always ask myself, is, is, is the, does the chair have a need to redirect? Does the chair have a need to tell us something we don't know? I don't think we do at this point. I don't think he's unhappy with where the market is priced or where bonds are priced right now. Um, and, and so I think that he's happy with market expectations, which are in that, say, 5% peak funds rate. I don't think he feels a need to really 
change the narrative that's out there that the market understands about the Federal Reserve. So I would think also it would be a sort of stay the course type speech. Okay, good stuff. We'll see again uh, if William says anything that we need to know about that. Steve Leisman, our senior economics reporter. Uh, Okay, so that's obviously a big story today. Uh, Big story coming up for the next couple of weeks is the Fed. But the biggest story today, obviously, is China. And the protests going on there, you see it showing up in the market through a a variety of places, whether it's Apple, uh, some of the metals in the miners, the semis, we're going to get to all of that. But what does that mean for these final five weeks where we still have calls for a rally of of some kind? First off, um, I know you have me on to make predictions, and I always make predictions. Predicting what's going to happen politically in China, you'll give me a little bit of leeway on Absolutely. this. I'm not, I'm not going to hold you to. I'm right? not going to hold you to that. I'm not going to do it because it's just not. Knowable. I got enough material. <laughs> otherwise, go ahead, please. Okay. No, look. I mean, what I think all of us would like to see, both as citizens of the world and investors, is we'd like to see more democracy appear in China. But the path to get there, if it happens at all, is going to be very painful for the Chinese, and so we're going to see a lot more of if it happens at all, like what we're seeing right now. And of course, what we've been seeing over the weekend brings back memories of 1989 and Tiananmen Square. Now, I am way out of my area of expertise, Scott. I will just summarize by saying we simply don't know what's going to happen there, but there is possibility uh, for more liberty in China, and that would be good for the markets in the long run. In the short run, Scott, the next two weeks leading up to Friday of next week's PPI, that's what the market's focused on. Let me go you get back. benign inflation. Go ahead. Go Sorry. Ahead. No, I, I, I don't mean to, uh, to interrupt you, but I'm just looking at, you know, this move higher in yields, albeit slight. The move lower in stocks, albeit slight. You know, from, from where we started the show, I wonder, uh, Joe, if the market's trying to read Williams as, as a little bit hawkish. Um, who knows? But it does seem to be a move perhaps based on maybe the market was expecting some, something different from him. So, so no real change in the perspective of the Federal Reserve, right? Status quo. What, what does that mean to the market? That means to the market, yes, maybe you get 50 basis points in December, a deceleration from the 75 basis points in prior meetings. But it still means that the one type of inflation, Scott, that the Federal Reserve can control is asset price inflation. Yeah. Real economy inflation it's hard for them to really be able to affect that. But asset price inflation, the Federal Reserve can affect that. I still think that's a priority to them. And I think that's why the upside's limited. I know why the market seems to be moving the way it is. Maybe it's Bullard, who's also uh, speaking as we speak, who uh, I'll give you some of the headlines here, which seem to be the result of what, what you're seeing in the market. Now, again, albeit slight moves, markets underpricing risk that the, the Fed may be more aggressive. Uh, risk that the Fed will have to go higher on rates in 23. Fed will have to pursue rate hikes into 23. Uh, he's speaking at an online event. Uh, but nonetheless, maybe those are some of the comments. Uh, he says the Fed needs to get to the bottom end of a 5 to 7% rate range. Remember, Jenny, it, it was he sort of spooked the market a week or so ago where he threw out that the fact that the 7% was even in the conversation, at least for him, uh, sort of spooked the market. It's Bullard. I mean, it's kind of what he does. It is his last vote coming up in December, right? Not a voting member in 23. So he's uh, maybe leaving with a bang. I'll give you another perspective, though. Maybe it's not Bullard, and maybe it's not the Fed. Maybe it's the fact that we ended last week trading at about 18 times expectations of $230 earnings for next year, and people are saying to themselves, you know what? That feels a little rich. Feels like maybe we got a little bit ahead of ourselves. And maybe there's not that many reasons for significant upside from here. One of the things you and I have been talking about, Scott, is can we get to 4,100? Maybe, but that's only 2.5%. That is not inspiring. So what are we doing now? 
we're starting to consolidate what's happened and thoughts. And you know what we're doing now also? We're shifting our thoughts into next, the next quarter's earnings, which probably aren't going to be that inspiring. So let's say we come out next year at $225 earnings. Maybe that's what this is really about is thinking about earnings for next year and moving away from the Fed. Because I'd argue... I have a that, hard time believing that. But here's what I'd argue. I have a I'd very argue hard time that everybody that. and their mother yeah. expects 50 basis points. Yeah. And everybody and their mother expects Jay Powell, Bullard, whoever, to try to throw a little bit of cold water on if the market gets ahead of itself, because that's what they've been doing. And Joe made a really good point. They can control asset price inflation, and that's what they're doing. And they know that job owning is the best tool they can use. But none of this Mm -hmm. is exciting or news to me. And as a portfolio manager, I don't care what the Fed says right now. Well, first of all, a lot of other people. Okay, a lot of other people do. Um, Two and a half percent. Joe, I think many people would feel is a bit inspiring based on another two and a half percent based on where we were. Like if we can finish out this year um, at forty one hundred, that's the number that Jenny threw out. And that seems to be the number that people are are talking about. I think that would be viewed in many circles uh, as a win. What's your take? my, My take is this. I said this a few weeks ago. It's 2022. What can go wrong will go wrong. The market had a degree, a degree of technical momentum last week in the middle of the week. It looked like we wanted to go up to that 200-day moving average that everyone looks at and see if you could initiate some further buying at that level. Nothing to do with fundamentals. I understand that. Okay, over the weekend, we get the unfortunate news surrounding the circumstances with China, both from COVID and the protests that are currently going on. That's what's happening today. Okay. We're talking about today. That's why, that's why the market is, is lower today. So I think collectively, now you... Add upon that the information we're getting surrounding the Federal Reserve. And again, the Federal Reserve is not going to allow asset prices to get too far away from them. I think when you look now towards the end of the year, do you say to yourself, what's my risk assumption? And we're talking about 4,100 for the S&P. Forget the S&P. The S&P is is not the index that if something's going to rally before the end of the year, Scott, we should be focused on. The only index that I see that can rally into the end of the year is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That's it. Those stocks within the Dow are the type of stocks right now that represent the defensive positioning that will mitigate your risk exposure in this environment that's totally lacking clarity. Those are the only type of stocks I think you can get. Is, is Apple in the Dow? I'll give you more, though, that could wrap Is Apple in, um, Hold on. Is Apple in the Dow? Okay. Is so that, you, I'm, you know where I'm going? I mean, I, I understand. well, you can't dismiss it. You, how, how, do you, how do we dismiss it so easily? So... It's the biggest stock on earth. The stock's down 2% today. It's got the exposure to China, which is, which is the an overwhelming issue. majority. Hasn't done all that much at all. Okay, the overwhelming majority of stocks within the Dow are the type of, I own Apple. I don't own it to the degree that I owned it just one month ago. Apple absolutely has headwinds in front of it. I know, but it's, it's not your grandfather's Dow anymore either, right? I mean, we got sales forces in the Dow, right? A big week for cloud stocks. That reports earnings. It's just the makeup of the Dow. Mm-hmm. is a little bit different than it used to be. Modestly different than it used to be, but still represents the type of stocks that I want to own here. Goldman Sachs, those t- Merck, those are the names I want to own. I'll give you more that could rally between now and year end. Right. And I think you made a really good point. Let's ignore the S&P for a little while. You know what could continue to rally? Real estate stocks. That doesn't mean housing. Set that aside. But there's a lot of growth potential there. Value stocks, which, by the way, are only down less than 5% year-to-date, where the, where the growth component of the S&P 500 is down 20. Value is still really cheap with decent earnings growth ahead of it. Um, healthcare, dividends. By the way, guys, dividend stocks, 
as measured by Dow Jones Select Dividend and um, S&P High Yield Dividend, those are both up on the year. They're up almost four, four and change percent. So I think there could be continued rally into year end in these kind of still neglected, still underpriced, underappreciated areas. What about, I mean, I don't want to be so, you know, quick to move on from the Apple conversation. Because, huh? I'm just kidding. I said well, you, I you, you were very quick to move on from Apple from your portfolio a long time ago. Years ago. Right. Which you did call it dead money. I did. At maybe the beginning of this year. No, no. It was April 29th, 2021. Wow. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you wrote it down. How much does this matter? This, what, this, Apple? what Apple does between now and the end of the year for, the, for a rally of any kind to materialize. Scott, I don't think it matters. I know that's not the consensus call, but here's what I think is going on. And I think it's been a big part of the year is a value uh, leadership exchange from growth. You know, the last 10, 15 years have been all about growth stocks. And I think value is coming into into vogue right now. It's not just because of the multiple differential. It's because of where you should expect economic growth going forward. You should expect it from industrial activity, things like clearing land to build new semiconductor plants, the need to drill for oil, the need to finance all of this, uh, which obviously benefits the financials. I sold half my Apple about six weeks ago. Um, I wonder, and I'm listening to Jenny, I'm saying, why do I even own any of it? That would be a bold call not to own uh, any of a 6% uh, uh, weighting in my benchmark. Uh, but I own actually now less than 3%. I'm kind of happy with that. I don't think it's going to be a terrible stock, but I don't think it's going to be leadership going forward. And lastly on this, you know, when you go through a leadership transition after a decade of growth leadership, what happens is investors want to believe that what got them such good returns last decade is going to work this decade. It's just history shows that's not the case. And it takes a while for investors to realize you're supposed to look elsewhere besides Apple. I'm looking at yeah. metals and mining today, right? Your mm -hmm. Freeport, I'm thinking mm -hmm. about. I'm thinking about your Cliffs, mm -hmm. which is off 3%, right? You've got concerns, certainly based on what's happening in China, about global growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's what's held these stocks back all year. And it's not just China, but the perception that we're going to have a recession here in the U.S., you know, and I, you know, I don't want to be punchy about it. I just want to lay it out there. I don't think we're going to have a recession next year. First off, the economy right now in the U.S. is pretty darn strong. Um, I don't care if you look at GDP as, as forecast by the Atlanta Fed or you look at airline travel. There's just a lot of indicators out there besides those two as well that show that the economy is strong. Europe's actually weathering its situation a lot better than people expected. When you get through this inflation fight, which will be done in the next few months, it'll be done. The Fed will reach its peak rate. Then you've got to look forward to the next couple of years of supply chain onshoring and infrastructure spending, which has been going on all year and is going to continue for the next couple of years. Even if they keep rates up. They may be done. That's a good question. That's a good point. Well, they're going to. It's not, yeah. it's not no, no, a question. No, 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 but it's a, I don't it's, think that, I don't think if you're Intel or Samsung or Taiwan Semi, I don't think that you change a 10, 15, 20-year projection of why you were building a plant based on the 10-year going to now 3.5%. It was a 4.25%. I could be wrong about that, Scott. I just don't think so. I think when these CFOs and boards of directors laid out these plans, I don't think they were basing it on a 1% 10-year. They'd be nuts if they had. That's right. Well, I, listen, what matters sitting at this table is valuations and earnings. The economic conditions, not so much, Jimmy. Go ahead. There's not the, the correlation between what ultimately is happening in the economy and what happens to asset prices. Valuations are in the midst of a recession. And then going beyond that, do earnings ultimately end up in a recession? So you're sitting at this table, you say to yourself, in that environment, what do you do? I totally disagree. Apple goes to 130. The market's not going, the market's not going up. The market's going down. If it goes back to those June lows, 129, 130 area. You mentioned metals and mining. 
you look at energy, you look at all the places that everyone on this desk has been suggesting to you and the viewers, Scott, to hang out. What do you do? You've got a pullback in the market. My view, do you buy more? No. You maintain your exposure. I don't think you increase the exposure because there's too much unknown surrounding China, surrounding Fed policy and surrounding, as you pointed out, earnings. Will the earnings recession present itself in 2023? That's a big question. That's going to tr- contract the multiple. That's going to bring a lower market. I feel like the greatest risk in the market, I mean, I don't know, the market maybe is reacting to Bullard more than anything at the moment as the Dow's down more than 300 and you saw rates move higher. Um, maybe the greatest risk is, is the underappreciation, as he said, of how aggressive that they may still be. You know, forget about how many more times they may raise, but the degree to which they stay high for a long period of time. You said you don't care what the Fed does, but obviously you do. You have to. Now, you, 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 your portfolio style has done better than many others this year because of your strategy. So you may not care as much as others, but for the greater market picture, obviously you care. It matters. You're right. And, and I, I was being overly cavalier if I said I don't care what the Fed does. But what I'm saying is, as a portfolio manager at this moment in time, I'm not hinging my decisions on what Jay Powell and what Bullard are saying, because what I believe is that they're going to raise 50 basis points and then 25. Scott, something you and I talked about last week, which I think is going to need to enter our our conversation, is um, is liquidity and the fact that they will continue to roll off the balance sheet at $95 billion a month for the next four plus years. And that will continue to take money out. So you need to say to yourself as an investor, in this framework, where interest rates are higher and liquidity is coming out, where do I want to be? And that's where you look at companies that have very assured either earnings growth or free cash flow delivery. And so that's where you can hide out. So I, you know, one of the things that I always worry about is when we paint a, I think at least I'm painting a kind of negative picture of the market saying, I don't really think you know, we are going to get past 4,100, but I think we can still make plenty of money. And so as we're talking about metals and mining in China, one of the stocks that's standing out in my portfolio today is Starbulk, which is a dry bulk shipping company. It's down 6%. And it's interesting because it's down 11% year to date, but it's delivered over 20 plus percent in dividends. And why is that? Because even in the context of this crazy world where the market fluctuates and sends things up and down and sideways, they're minting cash and they're paying that out to shareholders. So there are these places to hide. And when I say I don't care that much about the Fed, that's where I can kind of check that and say, okay, but what can I get with Starbucks? Right? What can I get with Lamar advertising? How can I invest in these kinds of stocks? Are, can I still make money in them despite whatever noise? I know, but advertising, about. I mean, you, you brought it up, seems to be, to be a strange place to be bullish on at, the, totally, at, the, at the, this but, point in time. But enormous difference between broad-based advertising, digital advertising, and billboards where you actually have a captive audience where almost nowhere else in the advertising space do you know that you're getting, I don't know, two and a half million people driving by your advertisement on the Jersey Turnpike every day. I might be exaggerating. I don't know if it's two and a half million people on the Jersey Turnpike. But still, it might be more. It might be more, actually, after this weekend and the traffic was out. um, But uh, yeah, so there's like, there's companies that have very, very assured free cash flows and cash flows and then return it to the shareholders. And those are nice places to hide All out. Right. So that falls in the value or the real estate. Space. We've been watching semis, which have done, you know, quite well of late, to say the least. I mean, some had rallied 20, 30, 40 percent. Um, the question is, have they moved too much? And is a reversion coming? Let's bring in Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG chief market technician as a new note out. It's good to see you. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. That is the cross. Uh, the crux of your of your note here is that in, you call the move in semis extreme, right? And you say it does set up reversion opportunities. I'm wondering, 
what that means for the overall market as well. Yeah, so let's start. Thanks, Scott. Good to see you. Uh, let's start with the overall market. I, you know, I think there's a bit of a assumption here that December is going to just be smooth sailing, year-end rally. And there's a lot of uh, truth behind that. If we look at December back to 1930, the average return is about 1.44%. When the S&P is up through November, uh, the average December returns over 2%. But when you look at when the S&P is down 15% or more through the end of November, as it could well be this year, we have another couple of days, um, the average December return is actually negative 2.16%. So I think the, the story there is that you know December in bear markets or in down markets is a much different story than the average December. And I think um, you know, it could surprise to the downside. So we not we would not be um, you know looking for that seasonal year-end rally from here to the end of the year. Now, as it relates to the semiconductor index or semis broadly, um, they just had a 27% rally over 25 days. That's pretty extreme. We we've only seen that a handful of times in the last 25 years. Now, the difficulty if you're just using that specific stat. We see it both in the midst of bear markets, um, and we saw it in early 2001, we saw it in January 2009 before the final bottom, and then of course we do see it at the start of new bull markets, um, like we saw in, in March of 2009, April 2020. So like a lot of those stats, you know, you don't want to just use them in isolation. You want to recognize that we've had this extreme move, but by our work, the benefit of the doubt is still to the downside. We're still below declining 200-day moving averages. There's still a lot of overhead supply. If you think about the SMH ETF, mm -hmm. pretty much the entirety of the 2021 trading range is above where we are now. So that's a lot of overhead supply. Um, so we just think this 27 resident rally into the following 200-day represents an opportunity to reduce risk in semis, not to be pressing them here. Okay. I uh, appreciate the perspective. Jonathan, thank you. That's Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG, uh, joining us here. So you, Jimmy, suggest you're very positive on the semis, which is peculiar at this particular time as well. W one month has, has made you more positive, or, or what's the story? Well, I've been positive all along. I mean, I'll admit, and you'll remind me that I've been wrong for a lot of this year. Um, where have I been wrong? I've been wrong. Uh, actually, it might turn out. a backhanded shot that he took. But he oh, anyhow. come on, come on. Anyhow, this, is, this is what we do. I don't need to remind um, you. Go ahead. This is what we do. Uh, look, where have I been wrong might actually be where I'm right, because I have disagreed with the call that there's going to be a recession. Might be wrong, might be right, but you know, right now, there is no sign of recession. Could it come next year? Sure. But if there isn't a recession, then being invested in cyclical sectors like semiconductors will have been the right move all along. Now, the wrong move in that case will have been to sold, sell, have sold it at any time this year. You know, you got to be patient as an investor. I've done my research as to why I think there won't be a recession. Again, could be wrong. But I've done my research as to why I think there won't be a recession. And if I'm right, then the semiconductors are going to play very nicely going into the new year. All right. So, Joe, Texas Instruments is yours. You sold AMD, you sold NVIDIA. Joe T has a lot of exposure. What about what Jimmy says? Microchip on semi. Mm -hmm. On semi, I own personally KLA Corp. I tried to lower the beta exposure. Uh, I tried to focus on valuation and where you'll see the consistent sales growth. Um, is the all clear here for the semiconductors? Without question, it's not. I don't think anyone could say that. You spoke about the Dow Jimmy Jones. Says that. I know he did. We spoke about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You highlighted Salesforce. You highlighted Apple. You're pointing out all the deeply negative performers in the Dow. Well, look at, sorry, Jenny, look at Intel. What's Intel down? 44% year to date. Mm -hmm. So, it, so there, much less than NVIDIA. There, there, there's, there's tactical opportunities if you want the exposure. I want the exposure. 
rolling the calendar into 2023, but I'm trying to do it in a way that's respectful of the beta exposure, respectful of the balance sheet, and an attempt to try and mitigate as much risk exposure as I can. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, crude oil is rebounding right now after going negative for the year. We'll find out how the committee is navigating the energy trade coming up next. I see that Jenny Harrington has a new buy as well that we need to get to, which we will. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we're back. Uh, stocks are still down, as you see. Some Fed speak, uh, among uh, other things, dragging the market around today. You bought Kohl's, KSS. Yes. Why? So last quarter when American Eagle cut their dividend, we knew we had to sell. We didn't need to sell that minute. We waited for the share price to improve, sold it, and then had cash. I truly believe that these consumer stocks are undervaluing the consumer. And assuming that the consumer is dead, gone, not going to return, not going to shop, guess what? Black Friday sales were out of control. So Kohl's pre-announced, then announced, stood strongly behind their dividend, like front and center said one of our major capital um, allocation priorities is the dividend. Well, they've had an activist battle, right? Absolutely. Let me get in, new CEO. Mm-hmm. New CEO coming in, activist battle over the summer where the activists were willing to pay up to $50 a share. Stock's at 31 and change now. They've got a $2 dividend, $3 of earnings that should more than cover that. Huge commitment to that dividend. If you look back to pre-pandemic, they were earning in the high $4, $5 range. Mm-hmm. So I think that they might be under-earning right now. I think they'll figure this stuff out and that the stock at 10 times earnings with a 6 and change percent dividend yield that they've publicly stated they're really committed to is a really solid buy. So this is the way that I just trade out, you know, if one bummer where they cut and I don't think mm-hmm. they needed to for another. But you, you know? said yourself you're making a considerable bet on the consumer. Absolutely him or herself. And that's why we still have Foot Locker, Ross stores in our growth portfolio. But I think when you look across, and this is where I say I don't care so much about the Fed, I care about what's in there. We run a screen every Monday and we say, show us everything in the U.S. with a three and a half percent dividend yield or better. And sometimes you have areas that just scream at you and say, pay attention to me, look at me, look at me. And the consumer stocks have been doing that all year, but even more so now. And even though they're up, 30 and 40% off their lows, they're still down tremendously, and they're trading at 10 times earnings. This one's got a 6% yield. Like, got a pretty mm-hmm. decent margin of safety. Well, let's, this, let's battle it out. I mean, 
The question what do you I think? well, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. Do you have too much apparel exposure? Do you have not enough exposure ah. to to grocery, to home goods? I own Walmart because Great I want point. the diversification. Okay, so in the dividend income strategy, I have to maintain a 5% or better dividend yield. So I actually have within consumer a pretty narrow space that I can invest from. Um, one other thing, I started this at a 2% position in the portfolio, not my usual 3%, mm -hmm. and that's to give me room to add to it. So between Foot Locker at 2 and change percent, this at 2%, I don't really have, you know, the whole portfolio is still less than 5% exposed. Mm -hmm. Ross stores is in the growth portfolio, that's a 3%. So it's not huge. I would love to look at grocery, um, but it doesn't fit. In our growth portfolio, you need a 5% or better free cash flow yield. Mm -hmm. So you have to choose from the pool that you're given. See, what I find interesting about your whole, you know, in, I guess investing style right now is that as bullish as you are mm -hmm. on the state of, you know, everything where we are, you really don't have any retail I know. exposure whatsoever from what I remember. It's, you're absolutely right, and it's a conscious call, and it's something I'm thinking about, especially when I hear somebody as smart as Jenny telling me that she's getting more invested in the space. I know why I'm not. I would have to hold two uh, incongruent thoughts in my mind at the same time. One is my thesis, as you know, Scott, is very much predicated on the idea that inflation is coming down. I think in the short term, inflation is not good for these retail stocks. And we're seeing it in some of the inventory markdowns that we've seen at Walmart and Target, right? It lowers their top line. Their, their expenses are not going to come down, I don't think, as fast as their top line should come down if inflation continues to rapidly decline. It's just a tough, tough place for me to be invested right now. Give me a couple of months, I might be there. Okay. All right, well, coming up, stocks are dropping on fears about COVID lockdowns in China. Uh, the China ETFs are moving higher today. Find out what investors need to watch from here. ETF Edge coming up on The Half. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Rare protests broke out across China over the weekend as groups of people vented their frustration over the zero COVID policy. What's next for China? Is it going to reopen or is it going to shut down again? Here to discuss is Brendan Ahern. He's the chief investment officer for Crane Shares. He runs the Crane Shares China Internet ETF. This is one of the largest China ETFs. Brendan, the bulls are arguing the protests are going to hasten this whole process of reducing lockdown. It's going to increase the vaccination levels. But I hear bears arguing more targeted lockdowns are going to continue regardless of what happens mm -hmm. now. What's your position? It's going to be somewhere in between, Bob. They've already outlined the dynamic zero COVID, which is a backing away from the very strict. At the same time, they're very worried about the elderly, unvaccinated population, the effects of even Omicron affecting that that segment of the population. So they've got a bit of a balancing act, but I think I think you see a movement toward backing away from the very strict policies. You know, I, I, figure this out for us. Hong Kong and mainland China down one and a half percent today. And yet I see China shares all up here. Your, yeah. your K-Web is up four percent right now. The market seems very confused on the right way to look at this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. One thing, A, in the Chinese A-share market, the onshore market, Shanghai, Shenzhen, best performing subsectors today, 
retailers, restaurants, and airlines. Reopening. Reopening plays. This morning we had Pin Duo Duo just absolutely crush earnings, big holding in K-Web. We also had the PBOC triple R cut last Friday. So we did have some good news as well as an important election in Taiwan that's not getting a lot of coverage here. But, but Taiwan kind of moving to a little bit of more of a neutral from a, from a diplomatic perspective. You know, I'm looking at your K-Web. You're down 31% this year. All the China ETFs are down about 30% for the year. And, and you had a rally in October yeah. on top of that. How should investors look at China as an investment these days? At the very, writ, at the very least, political risk seems extraordinarily high, much higher than any of us anticipated three, four, or five mm-hmm. years ago. Is China a separate investment class these days? How, how should we look at China as an investment? Well, I, I think, one, you have this back-to-business post-party Congress. So there's been three issues that the government has not focused on. U.S.-China relations. You know, we just had the G20, the APAC meetings. You have real estate, another big area of concern, huge amount of support coming post-party Congress. And you have zero COVID, where we've seen a dynamic zero. So, so China's coming back online in a big way. And I think some of the negativity around, you know, do you break out China? Is it uninvestable? I think as the, the, they get back to business, markets start to perform, all those issues start looking in the rearview mirror. All right. We're going to have a lot more on what's next for China coming up on ETF Edge. That's 1 p.m. Eastern time. Brendan will be joined by Ben Slavin. He's the global head of ETFs at BNY Mellon. Matt Bartolini is the head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Investors. Three international experts. Stay tuned for that. Halftime Report returns right after this. We're back on the Halftime Report. Let's get to Julia Borston now. She has a news alert on Disney and that town hall that Bob Iger is uh, having today. Julia? Well, returning CEO Bob Iger is fielding questions in a Disney town hall. It's happening right now at the studio in Burbank. It is also being streamed virtually. Now, sources at the company are filling us in on the conversation. Iger saying that among his many priorities, number one is creativity because that is what drives the company. He said in terms of the streaming landscape, he's focused on shifting the goal away from chasing subscriber growth, saying, quote, we have to start chasing profitability. In order to achieve that, we have to take a very hard look at our cost structure, our costs, our businesses. He also spoke to the hiring freeze that his predecessor, Bob Chapek, implemented, saying he felt like it was a wise thing to do given the challenges and the moment. He said there, this is among the many things that will be considered as they address the cost structure of Disney, also saying that they have to get that restructuring done quickly. Iger was also asked a question about speculation that Disney could sell to Apple. He answered, quote, we never comment about acquisitions or divestitures or mergers or whatever, saying that whatever you've read about in that regard is just pure speculation. Scott? All right. We won't read anything into that at all. Uh, Julia, thank you. That's Julia Borston uh, with those highlights. So uh, we'll get a couple of comments here. Um, you, You own the stock, obviously. To me, the most interesting thing of what he says is exactly what we talked about the day that this news broke. And what the future of streaming for these companies is going to be as relates to shareholders like you mm-hmm. who frequently cite positive subscriber numbers, the additions when it comes to Paramount and Disney and the like, to which he says they need to chase profitability from streaming rather than new subscribers. It speaks to yep. the paradigm shift that I mentioned last week yep. when this news happened, that these so, companies are going to view this 
an entirely different way. Not numbers of, of subscribers, but the profitability they get from the ones they have. So, you know, I could play it safe here, right? I could just kind of nod with you. No, no, don't. You know I'm not no, going that, to. You're not here to you know, play I'm it safe. You're not going to. You're not you know, here I'm not to going play it to, but here, look, here, I think this is some palace intrigue going on here. I'm honestly a little turned off by it because, and we've talked about this, right? Bob Chapik predicted that uh, the streaming would be profitable in 2024. Here we are in the, you know, one month to go in 2022. So Bob Iger, uh, you know, Chapik's throat is cut. He's out. Iger's in. And what's Iger do? He says, I'm focusing on profitability when it's like 12, 13, 14 months away. What's he going to do? Move it up two months and be a hero to everybody? This leaves me cold. Okay, now. No, but the prior got got the projections wrong by a half a billion dollars in the prior quarter. Uh, okay, I you know, look, one quarter, and I didn't like this last week either when some people were saying that the board fired Chapik because they were surprised by a quarter. If any board of directors of a company that I'm involved with is firing some guy because of what one quarter did, then I'm super turned off. In fact, I'm so turned off, I can't believe it. But I want to go back to the point that you're making, that the paradigm has shifted. And this is something we talked about last week. Why, we talked about it last has, month, too. The paradigm. Because Hastings said the same thing. Okay. But hold on. Yeah, but no, 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 let no, you no, 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 no. On Netflix, all right, if you're going to go there, I'm going to say that Reed Hastings, that left me cold, too. He's pounding his chest because, hey, look, I'm the only one profitable. Don't look no, behind you, No, it's not you, that buddy. he's pounding don't his look, chest. Don't look he's, behind He's you, not buddy. saying that. He's saying that you've got to, Wall Street has to stop looking at the number of, don't focus on the number of subscribers as the, the be-all, end-all. Those days are now maybe behind us. And, and it's the profitability of the ones you which have. Which is generated from the subscriber growth. And the point that I'm making, well, I don't even know that we're arguing on this, so I'm going to, tell, I'm going to dial it down a little bit so it doesn't go over. It doesn't, okay, we're not arguing. With Paramount and Disney, both of them are saying that 2024 is when profitability comes. That's like right around the corner. If you're an investor in this, and I'll toss to Jenny in a second here, if you're an investor in this, it's not that long before the stocks start looking forward to My that profitability. My whole point is, you know what Wall Street has said about that? Has That's said. too long. Right. Has now, to. that was fine before. You're a shareholder, too. Mm-hmm. That was fine before. Mm-hmm. It's not fine anymore. Huh. Has to be quicker. And this is when you want to buy. Right? This is exactly when you want to buy, when everyone's thrown in the towel. And by the way, you're half a billion. They missed by half a billion dollars. That sounds like a big number until you look at what their total revenues are, which are almost $88 billion. And so then the, why do we buy? We bought this, and we've been wrong too. We bought this at $120 in the summer of 2021 with the expectation, not for subscribers, not for the streaming to be anything amazing, but with the expectation that theme parks would return. And as the world normalizes, and as that normalizes, as streaming just kind of marches along, they'll eventually get to $10 a share. So all along, we've stuck to that. And this is the beauty of being a long-term investor. Has that view changed? No. The timing on it, yes, which is annoying. But would I buy it today? Absolutely. Because do I think that they'll get to $10 a share? Yes. And when do you want to buy it? When everybody hates it and they've thrown in the towel. We got to bounce, but go real quick. I fell into the Disney trap. I don't understand why this isn't dead money. Is this a stock over the next year Uh, that can outperform the market? Yes, because it has potential for real earnings growth and valuation expansion. We will remember to look a year from today. Oh, I can't wait. Up next, Mike Santoli with his midday word. Plus, it's pro week. It's underway on CNBC.com. Coming up today, 2 Eastern, none other than Kathy Wood. She's going to take your questions, too, and show us what she likes going into 2023. Go to CNBC.com slash pro, pro talk, excuse me. Uh, we're back right after this.
All right, we're back. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli joins us from the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. What are you thinking about today? You know, uh, this prolonged pause uh, in the indexes is, is actually kind of remarkable. We'll go back to November, 13, uh, November 11th, really, uh, when you got to this point where you've closed the S&P 500 in a 2% range to where we are right now. So you have unimpressive momentum, but also the ability to stay supported. Big question coming into today's trading session was, was the descent in Treasury yields and crude oil prices transitioning from a tailwind for the market and for investor psychology into something that maybe was getting to be a little worrisome in terms of the message. They both firmed up a little bit from here. It seems as if the debate is exactly, uh, actually, as, as Jim Bullard is, is posing it, is the radically inverted yield curve sending a, an imminent danger message about the economy, or is there a lot of other noise in it, such as descending inflation expectations? So uh, you give the market credit for, for staying supported here, even while being unimpressed by the momentum behind it. How much risk do you feel is in this last Powell commentary that we get this week ahead of the Fed meeting? I, I imagine a fair bit. We're starting to, to brace for it. You can see that in the volatility index. Um, I think we've largely transitioned away from worrying about the Fed as the first enemy and, and, and toward the lagged effects on the economy of what the Fed's already done. Um, but I think if he comes out there and really implies that the Fed is on a 5% or bust mission to get the short-term rate there, uh, almost regardless of, of what the, uh, the economy is telling us or what's going on in the world, maybe that's seen as a, as a net negative. But I don't think it's as big a swing factor as we saw back in August when we also were at a high and he was about to take the podium. All right, to be continued. I'll see you in a few hours. That's Mike Santoli All right. at the Stock Exchange. We'll do his last word, of course, in overtime. Coming up next, we're going to hit some of the big analyst calls on the street today. We're back in just two minutes. We're back. Defense stocks have been outperforming this year, and now we have Raytheon named its top pick for 2023 at Cowan, one of our calls of the day. Jimmy, that's the one you own. That like stock it. is up 13 percent year to date. Yeah, it's, it's a good stock. Look, there's two things going for it. One, uh, airplane demand. Demand for new planes is picking up. They supply engines uh, to new airplanes. And then, obviously, the missiles part of their business, which flies into defense. Um, regarding engines, you know, there's this shortage of casting, which is labor intensive. And so they haven't been able to produce as many engines as they want. That's going to last into 2023, but then should ease. So there should be more engine deliveries as the year goes on. I think this is a very good place to be, Raytheon. They go target to 120. That, that's 24 percent upside. Um, so that's a big move they see. Northrop is one you own. Uh, and that's at a great year, Jenny. Don't you own Northrop? Right. So we actually bought this in 2013, though, when it was trading at 11 times earnings. It's up 30, 36% this year? I know. It's been great. Um, this is one, too, where I think the low-hanging fruit on the big move up in the defense stocks has happened. So I think the real call to buy on any of these should have actually been in March of last year, not today. That being said, I think there's still positive return potential ahead. This is going to be very muted compared to the past. They need to grow into these bigger multiples. I think the bigger multiples are deserved, but they're not super inspiring. Lockheed in the Joe T, right? A little cheaper on valuation. Is that the only one you have? Lockheed's the only one. Trades at about 18 times. Northrop trades, I think, somewhere around 26 times. times. Yeah. We own Northrop. We recently sold. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, uh, we'll come back with our final trades next. Overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern today. I hope you'll join me. Adam Parker's with me. Matt Boss sizes up what's in store for retailers. We talked about Jenny's new Coles buy. See what uh, he thinks is going to happen for the holiday season. Kristen Bitterly, Nicole Webb, I'll see all of you 4 o'clock Eastern today. All right, Jimmy, 
We did have one other call that I wanted to get to because it's a stock that you have that you were going to make your final trade. And it is win. Yeah. It is upgraded to overweight at J.P. Morgan. They say, quote, we like Macau for 2023. I'm thinking back to where we started the show talking about China. <laughs> and again, I just can't make a prediction. I don't think anybody can what's going to happen uh, with regards to China. But I will note that on Friday, uh, the gaming license for Wynn, MGM and Las Vegas Sands was renewed for another 10 years. That, re- that removes an overhang that was on the stock. Now, let's face it. Macau is like dead in the water right now. There is basically uh, zero revenue coming from Macau right now. That's been holding back the stock. But all along, Scott, I've been saying. This is a stock you want to own, at least on the U.S. operations, Las Vegas and Boston, where they've just been killing it. And on their most recent earnings call about two, maybe it was three weeks ago, CEO said, really, they see bright skies ahead. I mean, they're prepared for this recession everybody's talking about. They just don't see it. Macau is a zero-cost call option embedded in the enterprise value of this company. It's worth more than its current price just based on the U.S. operations. Jim, as you were talking, I don't know why. What's, you have an issue with this? No, I, I'm just I'm just trying not to look at Jimmy. We're in four boxes. That's all. I apologize. <laughs> That's why you're smiling. I'm just yeah. I'm just trying not why to look at Jimmy. Would you buy Would you buy any of the casino names? I would Win not. or LVS. I would not. Why not? I would not. It's not a place. It doesn't fit with my strategy. Um, I think the consumer environment doesn't call for it, and I'm still suspicious. Um, even though there's positive news surrounding China, I'm still suspicious of that. So we don't own either of these either. But I was at a conference a couple weeks ago and heard a very We can lose the boxes, too. It's kind of weird. Okay, good. talking here. Exactly. We're freed. But I heard a very compelling bull case on Las Vegas Sands where they were saying, look, if you value both Singapore and Macau at 10 times EBITDA, you you get to a $56 price target. Um, It doesn't work for our strategy either. But I thought it was a compelling argument on how cheap the valuations are and how realistic the cash flow from both those areas is. I find it interesting. I mean, we have such a divergence of views on the consumer. We do. Have you seen... The yield curve? I have. Is that the most telling inverted us something it's been good? in 40 years. Uh, that's, to me, that doesn't tell me anything. You think anything the consumer goes. looks at the yield curve? No. The consumer doesn't look at the yield curve. You think curve. the yield I mean, curve we, necessarily no, is representative of the consumer right now? It's a reflection of future expectations for the economy. Come on. Which, yeah. may, which may well, hey, listen, Joe makes a good point, all right? This has been a year well, not dismissive of, of, of the of No, 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 but it's been a year it, of conflicting it, signals. The, doing. the yield curve is screaming recession. Airline traffic is screaming the opposite. The jobs market is screaming the opposite. I know what the Fed wants to do. Well, but because the yield curve is not screaming recession in 10, 10 minutes. Yeah, but how long has it been? It's been inverted since April. But don't forget the old adage. It's been inverted for a long time. Well, sometimes you could get 18 months. I don't know. I don't want to. The truth is the consumer is overspending. What's what's your. My final trade is. Well, yes. I mean, (laughs) we're obviously seeing the credit card data, which would be suggested. What is it? Walmart, grocery, toys, electronics, all good. Okay. Mine's a consumer stock, too. It's Compass Diversified Trust. I liken it to a miniature Berkshire Hathaway. They own companies like Marucci, Sports, Ergo Baby, Sterno, uh, five and change percent yield. Less than 10 times earnings. Lastly, Great management. we get Salesforce this week. You were thinking about buying it. I decided not to be a hero. Less than I'm not going to buy it before earnings. I don't need to be that much of a hero. Let's see the earnings come out, and then we'll talk about it. All right, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, too. I'll see you in OT. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, 
The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.